Getting the smile and confidence you've been dreaming about all from the comfort of your home isn't a total mystery with Bite Clear Aligners. Just don't be surprised if all your friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Bite Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Ah. The comfort of your favorite seat is now your comfy car-selling command center, thanks to Carvana. It doesn't get any better than this. Your favorite seat's the best spot in the house. Make it even better by entering your license plate or VIN and getting a real offer in minutes. There really is no place like home. And speaking of home, Carvana will pick up your car from yours after you finalize your offer. Visit Carvana.com or download the app and sell your car from your comfy place. Welcome to China Corner Office, a podcast produced in partnership with SubChina, featuring conversations with business leaders from around the world about the challenges and opportunities of doing business in China, the world's most dynamic economy. I'm Chris Marquis, a professor of business at Cornell, where I teach and research on this same topic. Every episode, we talk to an executive at a company doing business in China and explore what has led to their personal and business success and also some of the challenges they've encountered along the way. With geopolitical tensions between the U.S. and China on the rise, understanding how business can compete in China is more important than ever. If you're interested in doing business in China or are looking for insights to adjust your current business strategy, this is the show for you. Thanks for tuning in. Hello, everyone. I'm Chris Marquez, a professor at Cornell's Business School, and welcome to this live SubChina CEO webinar recording of the China Corner Office podcast, a show focused on leaders and companies facing challenges and opportunities of doing business in China. This event is in partnership with SubChina's nonprofit arm, Serica, as part of their Doing Well by Doing Good webinar series that looks at the nexus between business and social impact. Today, we'll be focusing on the past, present, and future of green finance in China. And our guests are pioneers in this space, both globally and in China. Uh, so Wayne Silby uh, is with us, and he is the founding chair of the $30 billion ESG investment pioneer Calvert. Uh, Wayne has been a leader in the space for over 40 years now and involved in founding many influential organizations, including the Social Venture Network, Calvert's Impact Capital, an emerging market fund for sustainable investment. Most relevant to our discussion today is Sintao, the Beijing-based sustainability consulting and investing firm that Wayne co-founded with Guo Peiyuan, our other guest today, uh, who is himself one of the leading experts on sustainable development and sustainable investment in China. So Wayne and Peiyuan, welcome to China Corner Office. Good to be here. Thank you. You know, starting off, I, I would like to start actually with a little bit of, in some ways, you know, uh, 
prehistory or China prehistory in this ESG investment impact um, uh, space uh, that Wayne has been involved in since the early days. And so, you know, I would love to hear a little bit, Wayne, about, you know, why back in 1976, you thought to found Calvert and then broadly speaking, you know, how this uh, investment area has evolved over the past 40 years. Sure, Chris. So actually, uh, I was uh, I was a Wharton School undergrad, financial engineer type, and went to law school at Georgetown. And during this time, uh, I got this idea for a money market fund. Uh, there were no money funds in those days, or just a few. And because of some financial engineering strategies, uh, uh, rolled that out, became the top performing number one uh, money fund in the country for many years. So we were kind of successful at an early age, which was unusual in those days. Uh, and being kind of my own agent, if you will, um, thinking about the impact of investing and meaning and money and purpose uh, became more partly of my uh, baby boom generation starting to explore those issues. And I thought there should be a fund that really reflected uh, my generation's uh, values, uh, like environment, like uh, the South Africa issues, uh, military spending, those kinds of things. So we created Calvert Social Investment Fund, which is, uh, as you say now, Calvert's like a $35 billion fund group noted for the ESG. So that's uh, kind of more of a mission and a, uh, you know, there ought to be uh, reflecting our values and these important investment decisions. So that's uh, how Calvert uh, uh, Social uh, Sustainable Funds uh, came into being. Great, thanks. Yeah, really very interesting. And we'll get throughout the talk, the talk today through, you know, about how actually this field has really evolved. And now, I mean, you look in the newspapers and, you know, this ESG investing's all over the place. And even in China, you know, it's it's a huge topic. And with the two meetings going on right now, I know that, you know, that actually, you know, investment in, you know, green and other uh, sustainable development companies is a huge priority. So uh, would love to turn a little bit to China uh, and also pioneer there in 2005, Sintao was founded as a partnership uh, between the two of you. And I guess, uh, Peiyuan, I'd love to, you know, start with you and understand, you know, tell, tell us about the founding of Sintao and what some of the initial sort of vision was and why it was important in China to develop an organization focused on, you know, CSR, sustainable development. Well, thank you, uh, Chris. Uh, first of all, thanks for inviting me to this great uh, discussion. Um, yeah, that uh, actually made me recall the story of Sintao. Um, and um, it was um, almost 20 years ago, um, I studied my uh, PhD program in Tsinghua University. And um, I just happened to do the research on sustainable finance. And of course, it was quite early in China. Almost nobody worked on these areas. And therefore, <laughs> you, you can imagine how difficult to make a dissertation on this. So, because uh, no, 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 not so many successful cases at that time in China. So I have to look at the case in other countries, uh, particularly in Europe and in US. So I, 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 I thought, uh, Cower Fund and Cower Foundation and I did a lot of research and, and then in, I think in 2003, I got the opportunity uh, to, uh, uh, that I could travel to uh, U.S. to do some field trip study and also some internship. And I was introduced to Wayne. 
at the time. So our first meeting actually was in 2003 in Wayne's house, where he's staying now. <laughs> and、uh, we got to know each other, and we talked a lot about this.、Uh, at the time, nobody talked about ESG. At the time, people talked about ethical investment, social re- responsible investment. So, so after we met、uh, with each other, we 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 like each other, and also Wayne. I I think Wayne,、uh, it's very much interested in Chinese culture, Chinese development as well. So two years later, we decided to do something different in China. So that comes to the idea of Sintel.、Uh, just one、um, more words. Sintel means synergy、sure. and Taoism. So that means we okay, actually、yeah. need to work together for、uh, an an ethical business. The way you do business in China. Yeah. So it's like yeah, Shangdao in the two sort of Shang,、right. Shang and Dao in, in Chinese. Great. Thank you.、Uh, yeah, Wayne. I'd love to hear your perspective on this.、Uh, you know, you have this young Chinese PhD student. <laughs> you know, com- coming over your place. I mean, you know. Why did you take the chance to invest in in starting up Sintel? Well, actually,、uh, and I, I don't know if Pan knows this, but、uh, I'd ask him about、uh, does he have a website, and and he said, well, no, he really didn't have money for that,、uh, and he was doing this、uh, newsletter, and I said, well, I, I'm thinking to myself, I, you know, just give him some money for some website,、uh, and then I thought, well, maybe we could. Maybe there's something more here, and we could actually do a business. So, we decided let's、uh, let's see if we can't uh, actually uh, uh, manifest this in 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 a, in a way that has some ongoing vitality and sustainability to it. So, I、uh, decided to finance、uh, the first year or two to see if there was something there.、Uh, I had. Uh, uh, Come in contact with a, a number of uh, uh, some of the the Chinese from Beida Chinhua through, and housekeeper was a Beida grad at the time, and uh, uh, so got to really have an early look at、uh, what's going on in China and the possibilities there, and really seeing uh, uh, the future of、uh, impact of、uh, growth there, and being able to contribute that. By this bridge through、uh, values,、mm-hmm. yeah, very, very interesting.、Um, and so, I'd love to talk a little bit, actually, about how that evolved over time. I mean, actually, you know,、uh, Peyuan and I go w- way back. I mean, I think we first met in in two thousand nine, two thousand ten, and I think around that time, you know, Sintal's work was helping companies with CSR reporting, you know, working on carbon disclosure project.、Uh, so things that were actually not necessarily core and central to firms, but I think that that is actually evolved. Over time, whereas now sustainability issues are really you know sort of central to, to Chinese companies, and so I'd love Peyuan to just hear a little bit about how how you've seen that arc over time of Chinese companies embracing、uh, sustainability. Yeah, thank you.、Um, I think over the past sixteen years, a lot of things has been changed.、Um, for example, the environmental regulation. You can see that over fifteen years ago, maybe the polluting company can make mon- make more money, but now this is not true anymore. The polluting company will have higher, much higher risk, right? So things are changing.、Uh, but、um, as、uh, as you said, that、uh, at the very beginning, we started to do some CSR reports for Chinese company, and it was quite early. We are one of the first、um, service provider on these areas, and we still do it. So、um, we can see that、uh, a lot more companies are 
publishing uh, ESC reports largely driven by the regulation, particularly for the Hong Kong listed company. Their Hong Kong listed companies, uh, Hong Kong exchange started to uh, uh, encourage company uh, to to publish ESC report in 2012, and then the second. Uh, Reviction of this ESG reporting guide in 2015, and then the third one in 2019, and all this regulation change also drive a lot of uh, increase on uh, 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 transparency issue. But uh, from my point of view, I think Sintel it's more like a bridge. We are a consultant firm, but we are also like a bridge, a bridge that connects China to the West. And you mentioned CDP. We were the the, the one that uh, bring in the concept and the operation of CDP, the carbon disclosure project. Uh, so you can imagine right. it was so early at the time to talk about carbon disclosure uh, uh, almost uh, 12 or 13 years ago. But now CDP already have uh, independent office in China. In, in China and in Beijing. Um, yeah, and, and I think we are also a bridge between business and NGO, business and uh, uh, non-for-profit organization. So some one of our businesses also help connect business uh, to collaborate with NGO as well. Hey, Yen, and I also, and Pam's leadership, uh, we also did the Sintao Academy. Uh, and that's, again, the privilege of, uh, not always being a for-profit company, but thinking ourselves as kind of mission-driven social enterprise. And this uh, Sintel Academy helping train the future leaders around these issues, including networking them together. And this is one of the many initiatives that uh, uh, Payen's uh, uh, leadership, uh, including uh, founding the uh, China Sustainable Investment Forum, kind of comparable to the USF here. Uh, and these conferences with hundreds of people starting to discuss uh, this subject of uh, sustainability and values and how to investment dollars interface. As Paywan kind of uh, noticed, uh, in the U.S., uh, it was very much, you know, the private sector, people like Calvert, actually kind of fighting with the government over regulations to expand uh, uh, the impact and the uh, uh, you know, values of investing. Whereas in China, it was kind of interesting, very much kind of government-driven. Uh, uh, so that was one major difference. Mm-hmm. Yeah, really interesting. I mean, I think this idea of like starting from scratch almost and growing a whole field. I mean, some of the things you mentioned about, you know, this academy where you bring individuals together, organizations like the Social Investment Forum. I mean, I think, yeah, that's one of the things that really stands out to me about this, the Sintao work is actually how, you know, you've helped develop this broader field. And now there's people all over the Many companies doing, you know, you know, sustainability work trained, I think, by uh, all of you. And so, you know, I'd love to learn a little bit more about about this field growing uh, and sort of thinking early on, uh, you know, the companies that you would try to, you know, pitch your ideas of CSR reporting, you know, early on. I mean, what why would they want to do this? This was not something that, you know, you said it wasn't even until 2012 where, you know, the Hong Kong exchange started wanting companies to do this. So, you know, 2005, et cetera, is really early. I mean, what's what's the motivation or rationale for these companies to be transparent on these issues? Uh, I would say um, companies will have different priority in different stage of their development. 
Um, so, for example, uh, when we were just established in 2005 and 2006 and we started our business, um, well, I just finished, uh, at the time, I just finished my PhD program. So one thing I, 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 we, we did at the time is to do some in-depth research to understand the value of reporting. So, so this, I think this is something that, um, that, that, advant- that something about our advantage that I have as a PhD. But uh, Wayne sometimes disagree with me because uh, he always wants me more like a businessman than a PhD <laughs> graduate. Uh, <laughs> Uh, but um, but with that kind of in-depth research, actually, I think we can um, showcase more comprehensively the value of reporting. Not ju- so. I'm not just selling a business. I'm not just selling a project to to our client. I just show them that why you need to do that. So at the time we did research on, for example, the Global Reporting Initiative (GRI). Uh, Etc. And and we we already we already raised the concept we should go beyond reporting. So you can imagine that we are not just selling a project, we are not just selling uh, a business. We are telling the company that you should you should manage these things. Why? Because you are getting bigger and bigger. Uh, if you want to be a long lasting business, you have to manage all this environmental management, social issue, labor issue. Particularly, imagine at that time, uh, quite lots of some several Chinese companies become large and larger and larger, and they become they wanted to play a role in the international society uh, and international economy. Um, maybe you will recall that at the time, I, uh, Lenovo just acquired the PC department of IBM. So I think that's a good case. So if you want to play a role. Uh, not just in China, but in the global stage, you need to understand the rule of the game in the global stage. And CSR sustainability or ESG, what we are talking now, it's part of this rule. So, so this is something that we talk to the business uh, clients. Right. I would say that in a way, it's part of face uh, to the outside world, and to the extent that. Uh, the rest of the world is starting to look more at ESG, CSR, corporate social responsibility. I think it, it, it was more like, how do we look? One of the conversations I sometimes have, or sometimes I do speaking, and so much now, some of the people on ESG want to have a, a checkbox. Oh, you know, the recycling, or this, or employee wellness. And, you know, I in my talks, I, I don't like the check check the boxes kind of thing. It's more like, look into yourself. What kind of world do you want to create? How do you project that? What kind of company would you like to work in? In other words, emphasizing the real roots of this that go into the values that that really uh, created the energy to to manifest these projects and not a a check-the-box thing. So what has happened lately uh, over the years is... uh, now, the, being an ESG company, there's this sense you're you're going to outperform. And while I'm not sure that's true, it is true, however, you reduce risks. So portfolio managers are looking for companies that have an ESG kind of engagement or spin. Uh, although it turns out that companies that aspire to that and were not so ESG, actually, that's where you pick up alpha in your portfolio. Uh my 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 point is that uh, that 
because now there is this belief that ESG raises your stock price, which you know we can argue about that, uh, that it's another reason companies are open to uh, why is this ESG so important to the financial markets? Why is it becoming popular? And what is it about? And to that extent, you know, for us, it's it's more about it's not about check the boxes on the forms, even the GRI. It's also we do a little bit of engagement in terms of what does that mean? And our slogan years ago was uh, um, um, creating value through values. And uh, that's been a theme of uh, Sintel and Pan. Yeah, really interesting, both sort of the discussion of sort of early work with GRI and how actually, you know, globalization and companies wanting to have face internationally is sort of important to this. And I'd like to ask on the company side, and Wayne also touched some on the investment side, which I'll, which I would like to actually focus on uh, next. But on, on the company side, you know, I know, I mean, I've interacted with the GRI quite a bit over the years, and I know part of their change strategy in many ways is, you know, if you get companies to measure, track, uh, and be transparent on these issues, then there's like a natural uh, cycle of trying to improve. So if you, you know, present you know, your carbon, carbon footprint in certain year, you know, you don't want to actually decrease in that. You want to actually, you know, increase or even, or even stay the same. And I think that's, you know, a really subtle but powerful change strategy. I'm curious, do you have any, I don't know, case studies or examples from the companies you've worked with, how just the process of engaging with you uh, has actually helped them become more sustainable over time? Um, I, I think actually there are quite lots of uh, story, but I, I think uh, perhaps uh, it's not very um, uh, appropriate to name some name of our client. Is actually <laughs> so. Maybe I can just give you sure. some example that I observe in the market. For example, general ones. Yeah. Sure. For example, yeah. I, I think if you if you look at the green development of a company like China Mobile in the past over ten years on their green development. The, the first step for them is just more like a charity issue that they will collect the used battery. So it's level one. And a few years later, then they, they, they did uh, a lot more on green development, which is, which they call green action plan that they will save energy for their base station and they will improve the efficiency, uh, energy efficiency of their uh, data center. And how they did that, actually, they will ask Huawei, uh, ZTE, to improve their uh, uh, energy efficiency standard. So this is level two. And the level three, actually, uh, it's about how a company like, uh, how, how China Mobile use their information technology to help their clients, for example, transportation company, uh, logistic company, agriculture company, to save energy and tackle to the climate change. That's what they call the industrial informationalization. So, so I, I also teach in university, in Tsinghua University. I teach the uh, MBA student, and I normally will use this case to say, to, to, to illustrate or to echo uh, Michael Porter's theory on so-called created and shared values. And I think that's also a good example to... To, to, to support that theory as well. And of course, there are, there are quite a lot of other uh, examples. I had the chance in the China Mobile, I had the chance to sit down with one of their VPs in terms of 
what kind of uh, social projects were part of their program. And actually, it was pretty impressive uh, in terms of especially in, in some of the very rural areas and what they would do. And I said to them, well, why don't you, uh, you know, you could promote this a little bit as uh, showing CSR, China Mobile, and talk about these kind of charitable kinds of things. And in those days, I remember the uh, person saying, well, actually, if we talk about spending money in that fashion, our users are like, can you just reduce our rates? <laughs> so it, it, was, it, was, it was kind of a different, uh, they didn't want to bring up a, a sore point. In those days, it was quite a monopoly. And uh, it's just interesting how in the culture uh, uh, where we would, you know, a, a U.S. company would be rather, you know, promulgate these uh, good deeds. And in China, it was a little more careful. But China Mobile definitely was doing uh, a lot of uh, uh, support, particularly in the rural areas, to people who couldn't afford or were underserved and that kind of thing. So interesting. Yeah. Makes a lot of sense. And I think also, you know, part of the motivation, I mean, you know, China Mobile is a state-owned enterprise. I was wondering any reflections you'd have either through your work or some of the, you know, case studies you may teach at Tsinghua, you know, the difference in these issues between maybe state-owned firms or, and private firms. <laughs> That's quite interesting uh, question. And uh, some, uh, we, we also discussed this question in the, in the MBA uh, classroom. Um, I think right. I think the driver is quite different. Um, uh, the, for the state-owned enterprise, of course, they will prioritize the uh, the, the policy uh, uh, angle uh, because, uh, as Wayne said, that uh, actually um, the the state-owned uh, enterprise will need to care about the central government's policy, this policy by uh, what we call SASAC, uh, state asset supervisory and. Right, that's that's that, right. Um, uh, well, if you look at the private domestic company, it's actually, uh, it's also a top-down approach, but the top one is actually the founder. So if you look at company like Alibaba, if you look at the company like uh, Tencent, uh, their sustainability strategy, charity strategy, actually quite in line with their uh, the altitude and, and, and awareness of their top leaderships. I'd like to talk a little bit about investors. I mean, Wayne was sort of got to start on this with, I think, a really interesting distinction that, you know, so much if you actually read the, the papers or even Larry Fink's uh, recent letter where he's talking about, you know, really trying to focus people on climate, focus companies on climate change, you know, it's about, you know, these ESG, company, ESG companies, ESG portfolios performing better. But I th so sort of alpha, whereas you're describing more, it's about the beta in some ways, about the risk uh, tolerance of the company. And so, you know, maybe even if the if, even if the portfolio doesn't perform as well, you know, it's actually the risk is is reduced. And, uh, you know, you spent a little bit of time talking about globally. I'm wondering China investors on ESG issues. I know there's a couple, maybe more than a couple now, ESG mutual funds, ESG indices. I was wondering if you know both of you can comment a little bit about sort of the ESG investment climate in China. Well, I just mentioned I, I was talking to a, a friend at Ten, Tencent just recently, a week or two ago, and uh, it turns out that the government suggested to them that having a, uh, a ESG uh, funds on their platform uh, would be a good idea, <laughs> meaning instead of the private sector initiating this, which Again, with the populace of China, I can't say there's as much of a movement there as there is here among individuals. 
but institutionally and since the how the government thinks and what the government wants is such a big influence there uh, that this uh, this uh, uh, and and thinking in terms of some of the uh, stock exchange regulations and so on has become more of a a flashpoint and uh, even them telling uh, apparently the, these funds that they also want them to have other programs that show that the funds themselves are engaging in some uh, 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 kind of pro-social uh, uh, NGO behavior and, and other ways. So it's interesting how it's developing in China because it's more top-down as opposed to the U.S. where it was kind of bottoms up, if you will. Mm-hmm. Uh, from my point of view, I think uh, uh, you're right. No matter you talk about uh, alpha or smart beta, it's always uh, true that uh, the ES uh, the long long term investor would uh, would like to talk more about ESG or SRI. So the challenge we have is that we don't have many long term investors in China <laughs> due to different reasons, um, and and this is why we always call up that uh, pension fund in China, insurance assets in China need to go first. However. Um, um, there's some commodity over the world that all investors uh, will hesitate to take uh, to 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 see the risk. So this is actually compa- uh, connected to what I just said that uh, there are quite a lot of change. For example, in terms of environmental regulation in the past 16 years. Uh, 16 years ago, the polluting company make money or even make more money, but now this is not true anymore. So, uh, so environmental issue become an important risk factors for investor. So, no matter you call yourself ESG investor or not, you will need to take care of the environmental risk uh, anyway. And uh, and if 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 you are interested in uh, some further reading, perhaps you can download a report or a survey carried out by. Asset Association of China, uh, Asset Management Association of China, and they survey uh, among the mutual funds uh, in China and ask what is the drivers for you to implement ESG strategy, and the number one reason is to avoid risk. So I think at least this is a good reason for them to adopt the ESG approach. At this moment, yeah, to add to for your viewers uh, in terms of portfolio management construction, uh, uh, and again, uh, ESG, there is a sense it outperforms. I'm not sure about that. <laughs> uh, however, in terms of well, I mean, our funds uh, are definitely you know upper uh, performing, but what I'm trying to say is that if you're a portfolio manager. Even if the performance is a little less, but your risk is substantially reduced, you do that every day. I mean, uh, in Wall Street, we used to say, back up the truck to <laughs> buy those, uh, meaning that uh, uh, if you substantially reduce your risk, but you get almost the same return, I mean, it's a no-brainer for investors. And I think what's going on these days is... Uh, partly some confusion, but there's this ESG idea that people will perform. So more uh, uh, pension plans and others 
are looking as a uh, as a as a you know a portfolio management issue, and companies you know when you think about it, companies that are engaging in change. I mean, change is the main the the main uh, 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 you know change is the main issue, and for people who can be flexible in terms of social changes, social needs, societal needs, and at the same time governance and their employees and that kind of thing, people who reach that level of awareness to deal with change might be expected to uh, outperform or at least perform quite well. And I think that's what the data now shows. Yeah, and I think you're you're sort of really putting a fine point on this idea of reducing risk is something that should be understand understood more broadly and I think is a really important point. I do, you know, maybe just, you know, press accounts need to focus on a very simple thing like, you know, this ESG performance link, but I think as we understand as the public hopefully understands this and investors understand this better, you know, they'll realize this idea that, you know, even if the performance is a little bit less, I mean, if you're able to dramatically reduce your risk through attending to these measures, I mean, that's, you know, sort of right. a no-brainer. There's so, another so- aspect which is that uh uh, especially in the U.S. is starting to happen in China uh, as we come across people. Talent, you know, I mean, if you want to, I mean, talent and the talent, uh, the young talent these days is wanting to add meaning, purpose, where I work, where I put my energies, how does that manifest in the world? And to be able to have a company that reflects some of their values that they feel like, uh, you know, I, I like to be part of this uh, mission in a sense and talent is, uh, ta- ta- you know, talent's the name of the game. I was once with the chairman of the National Venture Capital Association, the big venture capital, whatever. And he said, you know, I'm not so much uh, into this impact investing. He said this 15 years ago, he said, but we're going to do it. We're going to do an impact fund because I need to attract the talent. And if I don't have this kind of thing, I might not attract the top talent. So it was an interesting you know, multivariate approach uh, to this uh, to this uh, phenomenon. Yeah, I'll definitely agree with that. I've seen that through my students. I mean, as I've been teaching on this for about 15 years, you know, sort of, and people talk about these millennials, Gen Zs. I mean, this idea of actually having a company with values, uh, environmentally sustainable to, to work is, is a huge, um, sort of a huge advantage for companies. So I think that talent point is definitely uh, well-made too. Uh, we have one question from the audience, which is a little a little bit uh, uh, vague, but I want to add it sort of cuts to some of the issues that we've been talking about. Uh, I'll read it and then I'll add a little bit bit of commentary based on I think what one of the things Payuan just said. Uh, so the question says, as the face of what is green changes over time, what are some of the major shifts in ESG that may contradict past positions or beliefs? So, you know, Payun, you mentioned about this idea that, you know, if you were a dirt, you know, polluting company, you could make more money. And now that, you know, this, this shift, I mean, that's actually changed. Part of it's a result of government policy. So what other things, you know, as ESG and green have really taken on, you know, captured the public imagination and governed imagination, has it overturned certain prior positions or beliefs? Well, just one, uh, I mean, and this is, of course, an evolving area, but like one thing uh, we're starting to think about, and this is Calvert and and, and Sintao, is uh, in China, they have this 996 uh, concept uh, for Tencent and all these, this is, you work nine in the morning, nine at night, six days a week, and that's how you are a uh, a new uh, young uh, um, a worker in the society, and 
you know, we we sometimes wonder about that. And certainly, to the extent I, I have some data, the that's, you know, again, it's kind of like a check-the-box thing to be an internet or be plugged into uh, uh, that kind of uh, 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 way of working. And so I, I think, you know, we would start to ask questions about that, whether 996 is like the value we want to maintain, Chris, because you're asking what kinds of things might be evolving and changing and employee wellness, issues like that, which uh, in the past haven't haven't been a forefront at all by asking companies and engaging with them and potentially creating kind of a, a meme around, you know, is 996 still what we want to do today, mm-hmm. as an example. Payne, please. Yeah, 996 is a good example. Actually, I think uh, there are quite a, a lot of fundamental change in the economic structure and uh, uh, social issue as well. And really, the new generation, uh, uh, sometimes they will behave very differently from the older generation. Uh, and environmental is one, uh, for example, the so-called ant forestry, uh, just within one year, ant finance um, group uh, uh, developed this ant forestry app, the app, and they are chat, uh, uh, I remember it's something like 50 million people users. So it's amazing that um, you, you can see that how the young guys want to do social, want, want, to, want to do social and um, also green uh, activities. And we also did a survey every year among um, uh, Chinese people on their uh, green consumption behavior. And uh, I realized that actually uh, if you if you compare the wilderness of the uh, of the green consumption and the age of the consumers, and then I can tell you there's a smiling curve that um, that, <laughs> that the younger people and the older people will pay more attention to that. So so yeah. that's that there are quite lots of interesting things and change happening in China. Pan makes a good point about uh, kind of the younger generation and older generation. I mean, you know, I'm, I'm 72 <laughs> years old. I'm old. At the same time, well, no, but you see like these millennials somehow, not just China, not just U.S., Europe, there is this kind of this way of thinking, this awareness that is evolving. And I know that, you know, U.S. and China, we have a lot of different complicated issues. But I sometimes wonder that the next generation of Chinese that come into, I mean, I think they're going to be more connected to other young generations of societies. And I think, to me, it portends a real possibility for a healing of some of the the differences and past traumas from the past that the older generation has been responding to. So having this kind of language and what kind of world do we want to create and how should our companies best work and how am I involved with those? Those questions that millennials are asking, I think, also is propelling this movement. Yeah, really useful and interesting. And hopefully it does sort of have the ability to serve as a, as a bridge uh, in these sometimes challenging times. Uh, 
I'd love to turn attention a little bit more to the green finance uh, aspect. So, you know, Sintal, I think a number of years ago, established actually a second company, Sintal Green Finance, uh, which actually has investment from Moody's as well. And it'd be interesting to hear a little bit about why that should be a separate company and what some of the key products and services uh, that you're working on to help propel the green finance industry. Uh, yes. Um... I think, uh, 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 as we discussed, uh, when we established this company, that was because uh, that we we have a dream. I and Wei wanted to do something like responsible investment in China. But I told you that it was too early at that time in two thousand six, uh, and therefore we 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 change our focus and provide um, sustainability advisory service to corporation other than to financial institution. But our dream on the responsible investment on ESG were still always uh, were always in our mind, and and therefore starting from two thousand nine, actually we uh, develop a ESG team internally uh, within Sintao to provide data to uh, Western investor who are uh, in who are managing a uh, Chinese stock portfolio. Um, and um, it, it, it's a small team because the need is just so small and it's not financially uh, viable to make it independent. Uh, but the opportunity came in 2014 uh, and 15 because at that time, uh, China, uh, just in a sudden, paid a lot more attention to green finance. And it's uh, particularly in 2016, uh, in the so-called G20 summit in Hangzhou, uh, the Green Finance Study Working Group was founded for the first time in the history of G20. Um, that actually created a huge demand. And we realized that, okay, the right time is coming. So we, we make the Sintao uh, Green Finance a separate entity, and, in, uh, and it grows quite well. We have around 20 people now. And two years ago, uh, we received an in, a minority investment from the Moody's. And we make these two companies separate and uh, completely uh, independent. I think if I correct me, Payan, but I think we were one of the very first Chinese companies to be able to certify green bonds on behalf of the government. And for a small company to be able to... I mean, obviously, the multinationals were able... But in terms of Sintao, uh, uh, again, another, uh, another kind of uh, leap forward that uh, pay ends and our mission and our sincerity to move uh, uh, you know, these issues along, uh, I, I just wanted to appreciate that we're very, I was so lucky that I met Payen in terms of his energies and how he has manifested the growth of the industry in China. Vice versa. It's also my lucky. <laughs> uh, great. You know, actually, I, I see now that we have a couple questions in the chat window. Uh, if people could please actually put their questions in the Q&A function, that actually makes it easier for me to manage. I hadn't seen these. Uh, one of them is actually asking for a link to the China Asset uh, asset management report, and we can actually send that in the uh, in the follow up email that that SubChina will send out. So we'll get the link to that and send that. Uh, a couple of the other ones actually relate to. So, in some ways, how do you actually assess a company whether it's actually sustainable or uh, you know worthy of of being included in let's say like a CSR index? Uh, so I'll say, I'll say a little bit about both of them. So one of them asks particularly about Xinjiang solar companies. 
Uh, and, you know, so obviously, you know, solar, new energy, you know, very green, but then perhaps, you know, it relies on coal generation, you know, there's potentially forced labor issues in the supply chain. Uh, a second supply chain oriented question regards, you know, Chinese companies in Africa and whether, you know, sort of like the, you know, U.S. case probably still now, but maybe definitely 20 years ago, where, you know, much of the pollution is offshore to places in, in, in Asia. So I'm cur just want to hear a little bit about, you know, these broader in some way supply chain impacts and how that influences how you assess a company's uh, sustainability and CSR uh, practices. Yeah, maybe I can uh, uh, start with two points. Uh, point number one, it's about our ESG rating methodology. And uh, on the one hand, it's uh, we, we are also in line with uh, some uh, uh, common framework that uh, our international uh, uh, peers also use. So ESG, triple bottom line, is that true? So it's more about um, an indicator uh, system um, that cover environmental, social, and governance issues. So definitely if we, for example, if we assess a solar power company on its uh, ESG performance, we just we not only uh, look at their environmental issue, environmental performance, we also look at the labor issues, the supply chain issue as well. Point number two is about Chinese overseas investment. And I uh, actually, we also done some, we, we have also done uh, quite a lot of work on Chinese overseas investment because we realized that um, one, there are more and more Chinese uh, investment in other countries. Uh, second, there are also some critics and concern about Chinese investment on their environmental and social risk. And there are quite a lot of uh, reasons for that. Uh, one important reason is that I think some Chinese country just you uh, just uh, to uh, they. they you know, they, they are used to uh, a market environment and political environment or policy environment in China. So when they invest in overseas, they, will, they, they see a new structure, for example, uh, a, a whole a different trade union system, etc. And also they need to build their community in a, a relationship by themselves. This is not. This is quite new to them, and therefore we are actually helping some of them. For example, we uh, develop a so-called community engagement guideline and handbook, so that they understand they cannot just work with the government, but they also need to work with the local community. Um, and also, there are some work uh, done by others on the so-called green investment principle that uh, will um, uh, steer all the Chinese overseas investment in other countries uh, on their uh, environmental performance as well. I'm also interested in discussing sort of in some ways the future, you know, everything from, uh, you know, President Xi's recent uh, you know, sort of commitment to having China be carbon neutral by 2060, to the ideas of sort of a green recovery, uh, which is ongoing from COVID to the, you know, now new five-year plan, which has a lot of sort of green investment and sustainable investment uh, aspects to it. You know, I'd love to hear a little bit about where you see the sort of ESG green finance um, sector going in the coming years, given these sort of broader macro uh, developments? Obviously, it's evolving. And uh, I, I think my own opinion is that this uh, ESG phenomenon, which is uh, coming a little bit from the West with China in terms of companies wanting to be ESG because they think it'll help their, well, it's the right thing to do and improve their stock price and that kind of thing. And 
Yeah, we're we're thinking potentially of uh, creating a uh, fixed income fund that would invest in these, in which case we would uh, have what I would call sincere ESG. Sincere is kind of a Chinese, you know, do you really mean this or is this check the box? And I think that uh, we have an opportunity to help support companies, not just be able to check the box on, on reporting, but also uh, kind of engage on why this can make a stronger company and how a values-based approach can you know, make them uh, 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 more competitive. So I see that as a, uh, as a phenomenon that you know, people are more interested in what is this ESG, how, what is this about, that kind of thing. In terms of like the Xinjiang issue, I mean, Sintel Green Finance, you know, it's more like a company kind of uh, analysis. Whereas, you know, if we're managing a fixed income fund for Westerners, you know, there would be other issues uh, that that might be on top of those that, uh, uh, you know, are, are not just a company specific uh, that that we because we we have Companies want to invest, but they're a little afraid of China. They don't want to hurt their reputation. Uh, at one point, we were consulting for the world's largest sovereign wealth fund to make sure they didn't get embarrassed by investing in companies in China that, you know, come back to uh, the board or, or whatever. So it, it's an in-process uh, issue, and uh, dancing around the politics is always, uh, you know, something you need to be fully uh, aware of. Mm-hmm. Uh, so you mentioned this idea of maybe focusing some on fixed income, and, uh, you know, most of our discussion has been on sort of, you know, companies, equities, uh, a little bit of on sort of VC uh, we touched on, but I'd love to hear a little bit more about like these, some of these different asset classes and where, how you see the advantage in them. Uh, One of the questions actually asked specifically about how to uh, get involved and invest in green bonds. So, you know, as you answer this question, maybe mention something uh, about that, but I'm curious, you know, if you could differentiate a little bit where you see the opportunities in the fixed income. I think the Chinese fixed income is much higher return or rate than, than U.S. fixed income. Is that right? I mean, could you say a little bit more about that uh, uh, asset class? The 10-year uh, U.S. Treasury is about 1.5%. The Chinese is about 3.25%. Uh, so basically, you have a growing and a need for capital, whereas in the U.S., you could argue we have almost too much capital. And then you know, our spending and the COVID and the Federal Reserve and putting out trillions and holding the rates, meaning that for fixed income investors, uh, you know, they want to, if they can get an extra percent and a half, uh, that's a big deal. However, they want to do that in a way that doesn't create extra risk, doesn't create any issues that could come back and haunt them. And even though uh, fixed income is not the same as being a shareholder and voting, uh, so far it seems to be that it's just as influential to, uh, I mean, whether you're borrowing money or you have an equity round, you have shareholders, uh, these issues are equally uh, accepted and respected at the uh, CEO, at the, uh, at the company level. So in a sense, Chris, there's an opportunity to do kind of a no-brainer pickup in yield. And, you know, your viewers, uh, I don't know if they know the fixed income market is larger than the equities market. People normally think of the stock market. Well, the bond market is actually, uh, the credit markets are, are even more robust. So it could be an opportunity for us 
to influence and to work with companies who are what I'd call ESG sincere by providing them uh, uh, credit. Uh, and this is independent of Moody's because that would kind of be a conflict of interest, right? And so uh, there's that uh, opportunity that uh, 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 we've been looking at. And then that same opportunity could also, you know, Xinjiang or other issues could apply to uh, that you know that uh, you know that that uh, sense of uh, those funds, and uh, again, people want to. And, and the Chinese government, I'm kind of a follower of the People's Bank of China a little bit, and they're terrific policymakers there, and they're willing to do uh, you know short-term pain for long-term gain. You know, America, we're you know. It's like Americans, we don't like any pain at all at any time. And so our Federal Reserve right now is flooding the country with uh, uh, money. And our Congress is a democracy. And to the extent that uh, this could create some unintended consequences in terms of inflation, the value of the dollar. And then you have the Chinese uh, bringing out this digital uh, yuan, the first uh, uh, country to really do that. Uh, to essentially, uh, 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 you know, take some of the market share away from the U.S. dollars, reserve currency. What I'm trying to say is, in the old days, the Pe- People's Bank of China was kind of your father's Fed and, you know, guac- uh, whack-a-mole and different ways to fix things. But they've become a lot more sophisticated, a lot more sophisticated on the currency management. And it's quite possible you could see... Uh, that the dollar relative to the yuan becomes a uh, a weak the the, the yuan the, the RMB becomes a uh, a uh, stronger currency uh, partly because of the centralized planning control and increasing sophistication of uh, of uh, uh, Chinese policymakers. Curious, we have a couple of questions from from the audience regarding this green finance CSR of Chinese companies and how that may affect their outbound investments. You know, we talked a little bit about early on, the CSR focus was from companies' interest in globalizing. Uh, You know, one of the earlier questions asked about, you know, China and Africa. So these two questions, uh, you know, one just as general about outbound investment and the other is about, you know, how there's discussion of this sort of greening and social responsibility along the Belt and Road. And so interested in how, you know, the increasing focus on sustainability and CSR of Chinese domestic companies, how that how that's shaping their outside uh, investment. Uh, I think uh, that's a good that's a good question. On the one hand, I said that uh, actually, uh, for example, we are also helping some Chinese company on their overseas investment, particularly to improve the community engagement because they, you can imagine, they don't need to do uh, they they do it in a word with with very different approach. Normally, they will take a, a government relationship for, uh, as the priority here. And then the government um, will help a lot uh, on their community engagement uh, uh, investment or community relationship. While in many other countries, this would not, uh, this will be very difficult. The company need to learn by themselves how to develop the community uh, 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 relationship by themselves. And I think this is largely because of the uh, 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 the, the market environment is quite different. Uh, on on uh, uh, on the second ha- uh, on the second hand is that um, 
Uh, I think Chinese company when they in uh, when they go abroad, they also real uh, they also face a challenge that uh, there are too too many standards. So the local standard, domestic standard, China standard, and also the European standard. Uh, if you look at, for example, the definition of the green energy, um, that's also uh, quite. Uh, quite different standard as well. Uh, in China, some uh, the government still defined, uh, for example, the clean uh, use of coal as the uh, green energy according to NDRC. But this is not a green uh, definition in Europe. So China, Chinese company need to adapt to different standard. And this morning, which I, I just want to uh, just join the discussion of a working group on how we can harmonize different standard. Particularly uh, in EU now, there's a EU taxonomy on sustainable finance, um, and um, we are thinking about how to, you know, connect uh, or harmonize uh, the Chinese standard and the European ones. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense to try to, you know, makes it a lot easier for companies, lots easier for investors if there actually can be a consistent standard across all these different uh, entities. So. We're almost out of time. And just as sort of a final question, you know, I'd love to actually hear a little bit from from Wayne about, you know, he you're actually involved in a number of other social enterprises within the greater China region. So I know Tasia Ventures uh, you're involved with. Virginia Tan was one of the you know guests we had. You're invested in a really interesting company called uh, Zenflow. We have a couple of minutes. If you wouldn't just mind just describing some of these other really interesting uh, social ventures you're involved yeah, in. Yeah, Tasia Ventures is uh, this uh, a strong Singaporean uh, a woman who uh, uh, was in a, f- a deal flow of women's empowerment and decided to do a fund. So became investors in that. Actually, about 20 years ago, uh, we invested uh, through into the China Environment Fund. And what's interesting, Chris, is people told me, Wayne, the Chinese, they don't care about environment. What are you doing? You're going to lose money uh, doing this. And we were one of six investors to get this uh, fund going. And, you know, uh, yes, at the time, uh, you really wondered where were any kind of standards. Uh, at the same time, you knew that this is, uh, it's got to be part of a developing society in the future. We actually doubled our money uh, uh, on that uh, uh, China Environment Fund, and then it became a go-to clean tech fund and that kind of thing. But uh, my interest also, I have another company called Zenflow, and, and we do kind of mindfulness uh, training. Uh, we use flotation tanks and other kind of Silicon Valley technologies to provide kind of a a boost to this younger generation that, uh, um, you know, the wellness, meditation, these kinds of thinkings that I believe underpin a later manifestation of uh, goodwill around the world, because it's not just about good policies, it's also about us uh, being people who want to express our highest selves and also uh, working with some of the issues that get in the way, psychology and so on, even looking, investing in a neuroscience company that would also provide what they call techno boost to, to support your uh, meditation uh, uh, practices. And these also get into wearables. They get into how we you know, treat our, 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 our spouses, how we treat ourselves, our ch- uh, the whole. And I think that these issues in a society that was very much uh, well, Confucian rule-based, but then the party-based, 
And now it's more like, uh, I believe, uh, you know, for the benefit of the world, for people to ask themselves these deeper questions and have support tools and support communities that uh, usually are, again, this millennial crowd that, you know, call them hipster, whatever it is, that becoming more this global kind of awareness uh, that uh, they're inheriting these issues like climate change. So, uh, so I'm, 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 I feel it's really important and uh, a support uh, this evolution of uh, particularly this, uh, this uh, younger generation as they, they connect up and provide those uh, tools and opportunities. And it's, I have to tell you that, you know, really these young people, these young Chinese are um, really a, a, hope for, a hope for the future. And uh, it's really great to be a part of that and introduce them to whatever bridges uh, we can as a social enterprise. Thank you for that question, Chris. Yeah, super. And thank you for the really super inspiring and interesting answer. It's a really great way to end our uh, end our session because we are out of time. You know, I think just quickly, it really connects nicely back to your discussion of the 996 culture early on. So, you know, maybe 20 years ago when you invest in the China Green Tech uh, our China Clean Tech Fund, you know, it was you could see that 20 years later that actually China was going to be green. I think that as those young professionals that are in the 996 environment now, you know, they're going to have families and and you know want to actually help themselves. And I think that's that's a very sort of pioneering investment. So. Unfortunately, we're out of time. I think we could go on for basically the whole the whole morning or whole evening for Payu, and it's I know I know it's about eleven o'clock there in Beijing. So thank you for hanging in with us, and I'd just like to thank all of our viewers as well. I think it's been a fantastically interesting discussion. So thank you, Wayne. Thank you, Payu, and thank you all for joining this China Corner Office uh, po- live podcast. Thanks for joining us on China Corner Office. This podcast was produced and edited by Chris Marquis. Kaiser Guo, and Jason McRonald. Did you enjoy the show? If so, leave us a review on Apple Podcasts and let us know your thoughts. And don't forget to subscribe to the feed for alerts when new episodes are published. See you soon.